this week on Deep Night. That's true. Your interest <laughs> speaks to the universal aspects of it and and what I think is underneath those more surface events, which is sort of that fear of being left, the difference between that and loneliness, and how we can sort of move into those uncomfortable spaces and find a different kind of power. Oh, friends, hello. It's me, Dale Seaver, your guide, your spiritual lighthouse keeper on the rocky shores of a restless mind, your Airbnb host with an obsession for all things nautical. And I invite you to take my disembodied hand and dive with me now into the roiling, toiling unknown as we journey once again through the deep night. The hands of the old clock have moved into position once more, and the distant bells of a church thought long abandoned signal that it's time for another hour of regrets and revelations. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. I enjoy the idea of the sea. I think of my ancestors, those hearty Quakers who came to the country from the British Isles, seeking a new life of freedom what they must have endured on that long boat ride across the sea, with rats and bad breath and the creaking, oh, the creaking, and the barrels. Is there anything creepier than an old dusty barrel? No. But I know in my bones, my land-loving bones, that I was not designed for the sea. Maybe those old Quakers weren't either, but they risked it. Me, knowing what I know about being on the open water, the endless undulating body full of sea dragons and rogue waves and Portuguese man-o'-wars. Well, I'd probably just stayed back in England in a simple cottage house. I'd switch religions, do whatever they said, make the most of it, as I've always done. And maybe I could set up a mini Stonehenge in the basement and kind of use that to get in touch with my spiritual side, not unlike the way older men do today when they set up train sets and remote control airplanes out in the backyard. I could even start a colonial-era podcast, just chitter-chattering away with wooden cups linked together by twine. Could I live in a deep-sea research base where there's no back-and-forth rocking kind of situation? Maybe. Would I constantly fear a breach in the hull or some kind of issue with crushing pressure? Certainly. Space is the same. I love space. I love thinking about space. But being in it... Oh, that might not be for me. What am I so afraid of? Death, mostly. But also specifically, that kind of death where, like my cord snaps, and I just do a series of endless flips out into the darkness until my oxygen runs out, or my organs freeze, or I get pierced in the heart by a random piece of space flotsam. No thanks. Good luck on Mars. My guest today has no such fear of facing the dark, vast, unknowable spaces that surround us and, indeed, are inside of us. Melissa Phoebos is the author of the recently released collection of personal essays called Abandon Me. It's a beautiful book, full of longing, full of desire and awareness. She tells the story of her life, specifically her relationship to her fathers, her mother, and ultimately, oh, herself. Woven throughout is a tale of an impossible love story that consumes her and is not unlike some of the experiences yours truly has had in the romance department. What is it about being in love that can make someone act the way we do? The book is a fine read, and if you're out and about doing your shopping, I encourage you to go out and pick it up. 
Now some words on Melissa. Melissa Phoebos is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Whip Smart, about her time as a professional dominatrix, which we do touch on briefly in our talk today. Her work has been widely anthologized and appears in publications, including Tin House, Granta, The Kenyan Review, Guernica, Salon, The New York Times, Portland Review, Bitch Magazine, Poets and Writers, The Rumpus, and goodbye to all that, Writers on Loving and Leaving New York. She's won a ton of awards and is an assistant professor of creative writing at Monmouth University and MFA faculty at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Now, the keen listener among you will detect a slight variation in my voice this week, and that's on account of this cold that I picked up while traveling. It's a beautiful thing to be able to sit so closely with our fellow humans as they cough and hack indiscriminately. But I am on the mend. I am combating it with everything I know and every way I know, with every crystal and every salt lamp and rub and wrap and uh, spritz and tincture. So, uh, don't worry about me. I wanted to bring you this episode uh, this week, and I'm committed to that, and so here we go. Let's join now my conversation with the insightful Melissa Phoebos. Melissa Phoebos. Dale. <laughs> Welcome to the deep night. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, I enjoyed this latest book. That's what we're going to be talking about, Uh, a collection of personal essays, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Memoirs, as you Mm -hmm. said. Abandon me. (laughs) Who could abandon you, Dad? Oh, isn't it true? Well, first of all, just thank you for your wonderful work. Thank you. It's Thank re- you. I really enjoyed it, uh, uh, and it's uh, intensely personal and all that. But I re- And I love that you bring so many things to it. Right off the bat, before we even get into it, I love that you brought in Heavenly Creatures, mm. that wonderful film. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Peter Jackson? That's right. Did, that's what really launched him. Mm-hmm. And you have that. I mean, it's, there's some pieces of culture, some things that come through to us at exactly the right moment. And maybe it was because of my age watching that film. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe your age at that time. But it really just opened things up. Yeah, I think that the... The more sort of pop culture references of the other, um, the films that I bring into it, I I put them in there and published the book knowing that they would speak to a very particular demographic, mostly people our age, <laughs> I think. Me. The NeverEnding Story, <laughs> right. Heavenly Creatures, Labyrinth. Oh, right, right. A lot of those uh, mm-hmm. great ones from our youth, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a wide variety, range in there, but... It's, uh, um, uh, what's it? Uh, Winslet. Mm. Kate Winslet was mm-hmm. the first one. Wow. Mm-hmm. Something about that. Mm-hmm. And then the clay creatures. Anyway, it's a terrific film, mm-hmm. and I always like thinking about it. And it's it's one of those ones that is really a touchstone. As you yeah. said, like Labyrinth yes. and some of the other ones, too. Now, uh, along with that, I'm getting older. You're staying the same. But I'm getting older. <laughs> and for whatever reason, that means that sometimes as I read a book, I get um, it, it strikes a chord in me. And I get very emotional. As mm. Sometimes I'm reading these and I'm in bed because that's the time that I have. And the tear, I just feel that, feel that uh, mm. white hot heat of a tear streaking down the face as I read. And that happened a couple of times in your book. <laughs> then I have succeeded because my <laughs> ultimate end game was to make as many people cry as possible with my work. <laughs> well, you're doing it. You're doing it. And I'll give you a specific example. And maybe this is unusual, but you describe the dictionary. Mm-hmm. That 
uh, that was one of the ones that really touched me because you, you know, I, I wept a little bit during that. People don't use those as much. No. I don't know what your dictionary was like, but mine, it was huge. Yeah. A huge yeah. thing. Uh, as you said, kind of onion skin paper, mm-hmm. a nice red ribbon as the mm-hmm. bookmark, mm-hmm. indentations along the side mm-hmm. for the letters, for your fingers. Now, Dale, were you crying because of the implications of my melancholy childhood in that passage, or were you crying for the expiration of the printed book? Oh, well, I think it was the, just the idea that... Uh, that that dictionary is not something I see anymore, mm-hmm. so I was reflecting on my own childhood. Yes, for the death of the book. Yes, not so much <laughs> about the death of print, but yes, the sadness that was being conveyed in that mm-hmm. passage and using the dictionary as a kind of symbol of that. And 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 as I was thinking, and many times, and I'll address this in a little bit, but uh, the fact that a dictionary is like an ocean mm. of words, just endless, endless words. To mm-hmm. me, it's always infinite. If you start at the beginning and you got to the end, there would be new words mm-hmm. because there would be something coming. We're always trying to describe our lives, mm-hmm. the things that are happening for us. And as you said, uh, these words, the naming of things, the naming of us mm-hmm. can be difficult. Mm-hmm. You have a whole passage about your name, mm-hmm. Melissa, mm-hmm. being too too soft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a girly name, and I think I wanted to be hard. I aspired to toughness yeah. <laughs> for most of my life, and Melissa is just a pink dress of a name. It it does have the two S's, mm-hmm. and it's a very soft, um, mm-hmm. uh, fluttery kind of a, a name, mm-hmm. and not not uh, inappropriate for spring. You might no. see a Melissa in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> Melissas abound in the spring. Don't it's they? their season. It's Just our season. Popping up everywhere. <laughs> and uh, but do you feel like you achieved that? That hardness, that toughness. I do, and then I feel that I worked very hard to crack and be rid of it afterwards. Yes. You know, I think in many ways the essay about my name is the story of that evolution, mm-hmm. about how I, you know, the book, I mean, the word Melissa, I sort of recognized my hatred of it and rejection of it as my own sort of fear and rejection of my own vulnerable parts. I mean, who wants to be vulnerable? Nobody, really. And so I worked very hard not to sort of... First. Not, not at, at first. first. Not at first. Not at first. I worked very hard to sort of exile those aspects of myself. I didn't want to be soft or vulnerable or innocent or hurtable. And, you know, but I think it's always a farce when we believe that we're tough or we act tough. It's always opposed to some degree. And I did that for a while, which I cover in the essay and in the mm-hmm. other essays. But I do think that... I have circled back around, and in many ways, this book is kind of a homecoming or a welcoming back to my more vulnerable aspects. Yeah. Well, even the title and the cover of the mm-hmm. thing, a kind of protective mm-hmm. uh, shape making with your arms covering your chest, mm-hmm. uh, while also an invitation mm-hmm. uh, to to mm-hmm. to do what? To lose yourself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in another, in your own self? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those, you know, I'm... I'm definitely interested in the idea of abandonment. You know, it was a very, um, the title came to me very early on, and I think that's because it, just by definition, sort of embodies these different poles of sort of giving oneself away and the agency inherent in that and then being left or having something taken from you and the powerlessness and fear of that. And I think in some ways I was trying to answer one with the other to sort of find my own agency and acceptance and even welcome for my own fear of being left or of abandoning myself. Yeah. And that's, a, that's a, 
one of the essential things that we grapple with, isn't mm -hmm. it? And I don't, mm -hmm. no matter sort of what your upbringing, I was an only child, and mm -hmm. I know that I always had that fear, not of being uh, uh, lonely, but of being left alone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a mm -hmm. kind of a different thing. And uh, I still sometimes have that, but now mm -hmm. I have an opportunity to talk to a great many people. <laughs> so <laughs> we're all filling it in the it's best true. way we can. It's true, and it's um, it's confirming maybe is the word in some way to have been invited here to talk to you because I'm guessing that probably you the specifics of my story having a sea captain father um, having been a professional dominatrix you know being in a wild and chaotic lesbian love affair not experiences that you share with me in a material way but that's, that's your interest speaks to the universal aspects of it and and what I think is underneath those more surface events, which is sort of that fear of being left, the difference between that and loneliness, and how we can sort of move into those uncomfortable spaces and find a different kind of power. Absolutely, and that's the thing that was triggering the tears whenever I'd come mm -hmm. across a really honest passage where I recognized something in myself mm. that was there. But, of course, Dale is a mighty arrow of a name, isn't it? Streaking <laughs> it is. through the sky. It's almost a club, you know? <laughs> Slender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, I'm glad I have it. Um, well, I wanted to talk about this. I don't, uh, don't want to go too far in this and tell me if I'm off a of base. Mm -hmm. But as I read it, uh, there seemed to be that this that this book seemed to me that this uh, collection of stories is a wonderful companion to that other great work of literature, Moby Dick. Mm. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, uh, uh, <laughs> you have a, a person in a New England seaside town. Yes, uh, you've got this uh, kind of leaving that place in search of something that may or may not be unattainable, mm -hmm. and some kind of discovery that happens. You've got a Native American through mm -hmm. line that's going on, uh, and many, many allusions to this absence, as we're mm -hmm. talking about, mm -hmm. that longs to be filled. Mm -hmm. Off base? Not at all. In fact, I tried to get my publisher to strike a deal to package them together in bookstores. <laughs> Didn't work? Not, not yet. yet. Not, not yet. yet. <laughs> but I'm not giving up. Good. I think it would be, I would say that it would be a, a nice queer companion to mm -hmm. it, except that Moby Dick has many passages which I think are among the greatest in terms of gay erotic literature that exists. The it's whale true. blubber needing scene. My goodness. It is as uh, concerned with the corporeal reality of obsession as my book is, I do believe. And then also those passages of, um, of our narrator in Moby Dick and his indigenous friend in that little hotel in New Bedford early in Moby Dick, I think are actually quite, quite homoerotic. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's what I mean. There's mm -hmm. a lot of points to it. Uh, <laughs> but is that active for you? No, you weren't thinking about that. Well, I was thinking, I actually reread a lot of Moby Dick while I was reading it. And partly that was just me sort of making a survey of sea-faring literature. Right. I read some Rachel Carson um, and, you know, just trying to sort of uh, do my homework in some sense, but also to see how others wrote about it and to try to find, you know, for me, I think as the daughter of a sea captain and someone who grew up on Cape Cod, um, there is inevitably a romance to that. There are so many narratives in our culture for... Um, the seafaring hero, right. right, or the seafaring villain, or the what the search, the search upon the sea, you know. And in many ways, I, you know, while my book is not a direct member of that genre, um, it does speak to that. And I do think that some of those 
those narratives informed my own thinking of my own story the same way that they must have, you know, Melville and, and other right. such writers. Well, let's let talk about the captain for a moment. I mm -hmm. live down there by the port, and I see the big ships come in. Mm -hmm. uh, captain, even as we were uh, children, that era, captain probably not a big thing on the list of what kids want to be nope. when they grow up. It doesn't come up too many times when you go to the guidance counselor mm -hmm. that I'm aiming for this. Uh, uh, he, he was a captain. This is your father. Mm -hmm. uh, you consider him adoptive father or no? He's my adoptive father, but whenever I say my father or my dad, you, you I'm always him. referring to him. And it was a, what was the kind of ship? It was a... They were, he was in the Merchant Marines, and so they were in these enormous cargo ships, huge, like, With the freighters. big, big mm -hmm. uh, shipping containers Yeah, like nearly two football fields long, and they would carry anything from grain to cigarettes to car parts to even livestock, I think, sometimes, or occasionally weapons, like during the Gulf War. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they were not, I think people will sometimes uh, refer to me innocently as the daughter of a sailor, and he was not a sailor. No. It's, these are very different um, very different vessels. And I think, you know, and I write about this in the book, there's a particular essay that, that concerns our family's voyage on his ship. Right. And this was not something that anybody had a reference for growing up. We were very much sort of the, the last tail end of this kind of sea captain they they literally don't exist in this country anymore you know there are there are no more american shipping companies the like of his um and so i think in many ways that contributed to my feeling different or feeling sort of removed or having this weird uh fairy taleish sort of mythical story at least objectively yeah uh, and it, what were the routes that they had to take there? I mean, his routes all over? Are, yeah, over the course of his career, he traveled all, I think there's only a couple places. He never went to Australia or New Zealand, but he's been almost everywhere else. And I think towards the end of his career, um, he retired, you know, about 10 years ago or something. Um, he was on a pretty circumscribed route that was about a month or so long, and he would just go to the same places. And I think he was disappointed in that as the industry changed it wasn't the adventure that it once was where he would be gone for three to six months and in um this incredible variety of ports and far-flung places and he would just stop very routinely very quickly in the same four places um for a while well, as we're talking about it it strikes me that even a lot of the sort of modern literature maybe or i i, I don't know exactly what the the scope of this might be but a lot of the discussion when we're talking about uh uh, parents or uh, what uh, occupations, mm -hmm. there is a kind of blind spot around the working class, isn't there? Mm -hmm. and, and my, maybe that's overstating it too much. I'm just thinking of my own experience. Mm -hmm. My father was a carpenter, mm -hmm. and he had the same kind of thing where, you, as a you know, working for a commercial kind of a mm -hmm. uh, contractor or whatever, you end up building Kmart's and mm -hmm. big box stores, mm -hmm. and you're just making exactly the same thing, and they have dumb design and it's pegboard and whatever mm -hmm. else places for hooks and mm -hmm. ultimately what goes in there can you care about i remember him getting a little bit sad about mm -hmm. the about the corporatization of the whole enterprise right. he'd and rather be doing you know finish work here and there i think you know especially in this country the dream that we are socialized to believe in is that we can create our own lives you know which of course is not true for everyone in class <laughs> right. has a lot to do with it and you know, both of my parents grew up very working class. Um, 
my father's Puerto Rican, my mother's an Italian girl, they're both from Jersey, and neither of them were wealthy. Um, they had a lot working against them, but they were both very smart and very ambitious, um, creative thinkers and had this sort of innate um, confidence and belief that they could pursue what they really wanted to do. And so I think in many ways, being a sea captain for my father was the realization of many childhood aspirations, you know, that he was free, he was the boss, he was out on the sea, right. there was no one looking over him, and he got to sort of live out this fantasy that was also a reality. And um, my mother did the same. She was actually a carpenter and then became um, a preschool teacher and, and then a therapist. But they really sort of forged their own way. And in many ways, I think, um, were models for me doing that. And, you know, I make some of these comparisons in the book, but being a writer and even a college professor might seem pretty far off from being a sea captain or a therapist, but it's not, <laughs> right. you know, I sort of go off on my own. I tell people what to do. It's creative. I get to bring my own personality to it. There's no one watching over me or monitoring me all the time. And right. then I guess if the teaching or writing equivalent were that of what your father and my father eventually had to deal with, it would be sort of having prescribed lesson plans or being told what to write about, or right. it would not be the same life if that were the case. Right. Well, I, I like what you're talking about, and I also I think uh, um, one of the things that I gained from that experience of having a kind of a creative uh, uh, mother and uh, somebody who could build anything mm -hmm. is the fact that any, you can make anything, mm -hmm. and it's really just up to, to you putting in the work. Mm -hmm. And if you stay there and do it, my gosh, you can build a house, you can build a car, and if something goes wrong, you can take it apart. Mm-hmm. That's also a key. It is. It is. I mean, so that people, is something it that... It breaks. I don't know what yep. to do with it. I mean, and I think that's analogous to so many things. You know, I wish that I could instill that belief and understanding in all of my students. You know, like there's there's no shortcut, but also I do, I do believe, and maybe this comes from being the child of two working class people who built lives far beyond any model they were given, that if you just work your ass off and acquire this kind of relentless tenacity for something like you can build or unbuild just about anything. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Also powerful is the sea. Can we come back to that mm -hmm. idea for we a sure moment? We sure can. Um, because I, one of the things I truly loved is how many times references to water, references to the sea come in, sometimes in very subtle ways. Sometimes it's the rhythm and the way the story comes back into, mm -hmm. especially in the longer section of the Abandon Me mm -hmm. uh, essay. It, uh, uh, it's wonderfully done. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, and, and as you said, that was you're talking about comparing yourself to seafaring literature. That mm -hmm. was an mm -hmm. idea of yours to bring that in. Mm -hmm. Did it, you consider it happening like, like you that? You know, I didn't consider it until it was already happening. And I didn't even know that these essays, I think of them as essays, though they're very closely linked. I didn't know that they were all the same book until I had gotten through mm -hmm. a good handful. You know, there's seven short essays and then the long one until I was more than halfway through the shorter essays. Um, I didn't realize that they were part of the same archipelago of stories, but I definitely went into, you know, I've gotten this question before, sort of when did you decide on the sort of network of sea images? And, and it was actually the least strategized sort of um, process that I've ever had in my writing because I was writing, you know, about my childhood. I was, it was really driven by image and memory. And these are the images 
that are in me. You mm-hmm. know, I think for most artists, you can find symbols everywhere and, and you should be able to do that. But there is sort of a vault of very personal memories that come from your own becoming and your own childhood in a lot of cases. And for me, I sort of let those drive the vessel of my of my work right. um and so they i actually had to go through and prune out more sea images that were in the book because <laughs> it was just overkill um because i was really sort of saturated in that and i sort of let those let those symbols um help me find the story they were sort of the light in the dark that led me to the story and you know in some ways i think even the form of the book mimics a kind of sea or title um, movement because at first I think I was reluctant to see them as one whole because there are repetitions where I feared redundancies. I cover certain um, scenes, even specific scenes or, you know, the experience of waiting or missing my father, the sea captain. Um, but now I think of these as sort of the way that waves lap and recede or sort of the peak and trough of memory and experience and how that's mimicked everywhere in nature, but certainly in the sea. Yeah. Well, that's how it, it struck me. I mean, good. you talk of sometimes a good uh, beach read, but this mm-hmm. one seemed to be actually <laughs> elemental and coming up out of it, made of the stuff. And something that was a little curious to me through that, because mm-hmm. there's the longing for the captain. There's also mm-hmm. this uh, longing for the object of your uh, consternation, mm-hmm. frustration, confusion. In mm-hmm. other words, love, mm-hmm. uh, who is somebody who located miles away from the ocean and is mm-hmm. landlocked mm-hmm. there, although you keep finding ways to slip into pools and things yep. as you can here and there. Oh, you're a very uh, savvy reader, very smart. Yeah, <laughs> I did a close read on this one. But uh, that was uh, fascinating to me, a kind of uh, inversion. While there's somebody out to sea that you're missing, there's also somebody in a kind of uh, desert. Yeah, yeah. And I think I did, you know, as I was starting writing it, I didn't think of these things, but maybe in revision or as it progressed, I did. it did occur to me also that I was sort of drawing in some way, maybe in some less conscious way on there's a lot of narratives in our culture on at least Western literature about sort of the hero, the consternated hero, the hero in crisis sort of going to the sea or to the desert, right? Mm -hmm. These Mm -hmm. are, um, there's a tradition of that to sort of find themselves and face their demons. And in many ways I went to face my demons of the sea in the desert, you know, and had to perform that journey to come home to myself. Yes. And, uh, but it's, uh, that's such a tough, I've been there, that, that uh, not exactly there, but I mean, mm-hmm. that relationship where mm-hmm. you, 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 you I, there's a several times I thought, oh, Melissa, get out of this. <laughs> just, just stop. It's not, it's not working. But, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure that I felt that way about myself. Too. I felt that way about myself <laughs> and certainly all my friends felt that way while I was in it. I mean, in many ways that was what drove me to write the book. And it was also the thing that was so frightening about writing the book because there was this dramatic disparity between what I understood in my mind. I knew that it was crazy. I knew that it wasn't going to work. I knew that this was not true love should not have you crying so much that the skin is peeling off of your face and your friends are breaking up with you and you're crashing into parked cars, all of which I detail in the book. But but at the same time, there is some deeper drive to pursue relationships that aren't going to work by the definition of like making you happy and lasting forever or even um, fulfilling you for a short period of time. But I do think that, you know, and sometimes the narrative around these like destructive or unhealthy or codependent or 
addictive relationships is that they are an expression of self-loathing or, you know, pathology. And, you know, partly as a result of surviving it and partly as a result of writing about it and examining it so closely, I really sort of arrived at this changed perspective wherein I now think that those urges are often the expression of a kind of deeper wisdom that knows that we have to go to the desert of our own experience mm. in order to heal ourselves. I don't think I'll ever have to have another relationship like that again. I certainly hope not. <laughs> right. But also that it's a somewhat universal experience. I've already heard, you know, the book's only been out for, it's been less than a week and, I mean, less than a month. And, and I've heard from all these strangers who, again, like don't necessarily have my concrete experience in many ways, who have had very different lives, but who relate in a very direct way to the dynamic of that relationship and the insistence of their own drives toward things that are clearly, you know, I'm making quote marks, unhealthy or right. dysfunctional. Right. Um, I'm just reflecting on the own that that impulse to to fix or mm. to, to be able to see something that can be taken apart and put back together mm -hmm. again, this working mm -hmm. class idea. I've also applied that to relate. And now the same thing. I don't regret going through mm -hmm. that. I feel like I'm in a better position now than I ever was. But while you're in it, it's like, Okay, we're just going to have to unscrew this thing and see what the parts are, yeah. and we can put it back together. Exactly, It'll be fine. I think there is is actually an element almost of work ethic in, like, if something <laughs> right. is broken, but I see the good in it. Like, I'll just, I can be such a little pit bull. I'll just be so dogged about trying to fix it right. and make it work. And that is a quality that serves me in many ways. It helps me write. Yes. Certainly, it has helped me achieve certain things in my career. It has helped me repair relationships and. You know, even though I couldn't, you know, fix that relationship, I do think there was that deeper concern of wanting to sort of dismantle and look at maybe the, you know, I'm going to use the word trauma, even though the connotations can be problematic of that, but sort of the the breakages, breakages or unmet needs or attachment issues of my childhood. In many ways, I think in relationships, we're looking for those so that we can unbuild them and rebuild them and find a way to fix them. And sometimes... We do, though it doesn't always look like what we think it will, which is happily ever after with that person. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I guess sometimes we end up, as we're talking about, rebuilding ourselves in the process, and that's, or l at least learning how we come apart. Yeah, I think I think when it's <laughs> successful, we, we always do that. Like that's yeah, where well, that's the yeah. that's the much more achievable happily ever after is yeah. is taking apart yourself and finding a way to put yourself back together. Yeah, I realized I was really uh, drawn to the fixer upper. Mm -hmm. Woman in crisis. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A lot of us are. Yeah. A lot of us are. Yeah. Well, it was okay for a time. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay until it's not okay. Uh, but there is this talk, and uh, maybe it's a title, maybe it's something else, maybe it's this breaking down and putting back together kind of a thing. But the idea that one would want to, um, when we're talking about love, to kind of... Uh, a desire to be consumed, mm. a desire to disappear into someone. I think you mm -hmm. also talk about enveloping them within your own self. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like as we're talking about how we are in relationships, uh, do you get to the point where there's just a, a space for you to acknowledge each other yeah. <laughs> without endless uh, Yes. In fact, <laughs> I think partly as a result of this experience, maybe largely as a result of this experience, you know, I'd always had that urge. I was always sort of an enmeshment style lover where I would just collapse into the other person and we build our own world and there's no differentiation and that's wonderful when you're 
a teenager. <laughs> and, um, but as an adult, it can be highly problematic and yeah. is unsustainable, I think. And, and with this relationship, I just... I feel like I went all the way. I was like, I'm just going to stay at the bar until I get 86 and never come back here again. And, <laughs> and that basically how I sort of followed it to the end point where I, I physically like could not do that. And my body was rejecting that experience, you right. know? And, and so when that relationship ended, I mean, it's a spoiler alert, but hope, but hopefully that's not going to be a surprise <laughs> to anyone who's re starts reading it. Um, I actually took this period of celibacy for six months. Um, and I'd been in relationships in very intense sort of collapsed relationships since I was a teenager. And it was wonderful. It was enlightening. Um, it was some of the best six months of my life. And I had, <laughs> I, I mean, I can say that earnestly. It really was. It was certainly the most peaceful six months of my life. And, um, and I also just had this kind of unprecedented access to my adult self where I had always been making choices and perceiving things in conjunction with someone else's perspective and someone else's needs. And so to be alone with my own was, was a lot of new information, you yeah. know, and, yeah. you know, I'm recently in a new relationship and it's so different to feel those urges to want to be like let's just get a blood transfusion and be each other <laughs> you know um to to you know feeling that and and expressing affection but also maintaining our differentiated selves you know which i think ironically leaves room for a, a more real kind of intimacy right if you are separate people then you can make choices about where to meet each other and what to share and I think you're actually more capable of different kinds of vulnerability. If you're all the same, how do you show yourself to someone? You know, how do you make a choice to love them? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you have to get to your own truth before mm -hmm. you can really know mm -hmm. uh, where you're willing to go. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's important. Um, on the subject of personal space, the space that one occupies in the world, this mm -hmm. kind of like a bubble that we walk through, not unlike a action of identity through this, what we're mm -hmm. talking about, to mm -hmm. get to that, to your own, your own limitations, your own truths, your own mm -hmm. where you exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, what, there's what one projects outward. Mm -hmm. um, your previous book, Whip Smart, mm -hmm. uh, uh, detailed your time as a dominatrix. Mm -hmm. That's taking on a persona, uh, mm, for it sure. It certainly was. And this book, I'm going to also assume, is another persona, maybe one a little bit closer mm -hmm. uh, to to Melissa mm -hmm. in daily life, or, or mm -hmm. no? Yeah, I think that, you know, both of these books, but there's certainly a progression between them, that with Whip Smart, I was writing very much about this persona I created um, as, you know, sort of the ultimate attempt for me to assume that toughness, that that we started this conversation talking about the anti-Melissa, mm -hmm. yeah. Justine, and which or was Melissa my name. In a shell, yes, like that. yes, yeah. and you know, I think that w when I started writing Whip Smart, I I began writing it almost as the persona, like I wasn't fully detached from it, and mm. and a big part of my writing that book was sort of trying to shake loose from that desire to present as you know tough and um, invulnerable. And in Abandon Me, I think I was already softer. But it is also about sort of creating a persona and also in a greater way sort of creating a narrative and the mythologies and characters that we build of ourselves and other people in love and in families. But I think I was much more conscious of stepping outside of the construction of those and 
and tearing them down in many ways and saying, here's the thing that we built. Here's the romance of it. And here is how it collapsed, you know, and how that's not a bad thing. You know, the, it, it is, I sort of write about and also enact in the writing of this book, um, the very scary but rewarding task of destroying the narratives that we build in order to live inside of things that we needn't live in forever, you know, <laughs> including relationships, including versions of ourselves that make it easier to accept the parts of us that we're ashamed of or that we're, that we fear. There's something very uh, powerful in the persona, isn't there? Mm, there it's, is. It's, uh, I'm captivated by the idea. Mm -hmm. I've not explored it uh, too much, this idea of having an alter ego, something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> but I, I, I do feel something about it. And uh, uh, there's something about uh, being able to eke out this other version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then once you kind of... And I acknowledge there's some privilege involved in even having the time mm -hmm. to to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to explore another self in addition. But once you open up that valve and kind of let yourself bleed mm -hmm. out and feel out, it's like that Black Mirror episode mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. you have a kind of base model and yep. you project little parts of yourself yep. into it, but it's separate. Um, you can Once you become that new self, anything's possible. Mm -hmm. And there's something really thrilling and enticing and maybe addictive about that mm -hmm. to, to have to have this um, completely open other vessel. Yes, I agree. And I, th I think that there's a very broad spectrum of um, ways that that can be used. It can certainly be used for destructive things um, to sort of give us license to enact the parts of us that you know, our ego would keep under wraps otherwise. But also I do think as a, as an artist and as a writer, it's always a persona. I could never represent my full self on the page. And in writing, I sort of choose a story. It's always a limited version of myself that is telling that story. And because there's this um, sort of middleman of the work on the page, I can actually say things and approach a greater kind of honesty than I can in life, you know, I have said so many things in writing that are true, that are true in a very deep way for me, but that I was never able to say aloud, and some of which I still haven't said aloud, and some of which I ended up saying aloud for the first time, like into a microphone, <laughs> because I, you know, there's a there's a privacy in persona and in writing um, that we don't have when we're faced with the people to whom we're speaking or exposing ourselves that allows us to be more honest if honesty is the thing that we're trying to approach. I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you're saying, mm -hmm. that's for sure. And, uh, you know, maybe I've had some time here on the microphone where I could say things I couldn't say. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. we don't know. I do think that I, I understand the dangers of it. I feel like I'd make a great criminal. Mm -hmm. Because people wouldn't expect it. Mm -hmm. But boy, I could pull off a heist. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. I could people are always asking me for directions in the street. They trust me. Yep. But watch out. I, I could have I could have a bag, have a car ready to go. Nobody knows. Jump out of a plane. I mean, in many ways, you know, for years that I wrote about this a little bit in Whiff Smart, you know, I was a heroin addict. I was a not a big time criminal, but I was a, a hustler a bit, for yeah. a while and I was really able to pull it off. Um, I think because I have this sort of facility with persona and, and also because I, I was able to move pretty fluidly between a, a genuine sort of sweetness and, you know, this sort of real self that I had, but then I could easily slip into these other personas and, 
um, you know, there's a joke that I've always loved about uh, the difference between junkies and alcoholics. And the joke goes, you know, what's the difference between a junkie and an alcoholic? And the answer is, um, they'll both steal your wallet, but a junkie will help you look for it. <laughs> and I, you know, I do think that there is sort of, and I attribute some of this to the sort of addictive parts of my personality that I've worked really hard to, you know, I'm terrible liar now. I would make an awful criminal now. Um, but I've, I've done that intentionally, you know, I've right. sort of exiled those right. parts and worked through them, but, but I did have that sort of natural facility where it was like genuine. I want to help people, but I also want to rip you off a little bit, you know, and yep. sometimes those things can exist in the same place. You know, people are never all one thing. No, but you, you put on the Pink Panther theme song. <laughs> And I start sneaking around. How That's does it go? Yep. I can't it. believe I remember that. It's been so many years. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best for pulling off a heist, mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. or uh, putting in insulation, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, but that also that worries a lot of people. This idea that you can be anything, mm -hmm. that anybody mm -hmm. can be anything, and it's really um, it. Triggering is not the right word, but it's it's sparking outrage and telling people. People want to say, no, you use this bathroom or use that bathroom. Yep. People are getting all upset about yep, that. People... But, but people who have enjoyed the idea of a persona understand it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and I think maybe we also understand in some way, I, I know I do, that when people seek to control the behavior or identities of other people, it's never about those other people. It's always about our own discomfort with the idea that something could be fluid and not fixed. I mean, human beings, especially Americans, are are obsessed with the idea of, of things being concrete and categorizable and diagnosable, and we just desperately want things to be fixed because we get so much comfort from that, but they're not. No. Not identity, not sexuality, not any part of it, you know? And it doesn't, even when it doesn't concern people, I think it just threatens their the things that make them feel comforted the illusions that make them feel comforted they're landlocked in a way yes yes i believe they are <laughs> i believe they are yeah it's true well uh do you have another persona you're going to slide into um i've already slid into it actually <laughs> oh, it's this happening is, right yeah, now <laughs> this is a, this is a pure fabrication <laughs> well uh it strikes me that the character in the book and maybe yourself i don't know but a very tactile person mm -hmm. there's some things that come in um you know there's a uh, i have some kind of a mystical practice and I, I my wife is an energy healer mm. but uh th these kind of things come in like maybe this was here for this reason mm -hmm. and you push that away and mm -hmm. get back to the actualness of the thing mm -hmm. is that uh, accurate for for who you are uh, or is that uh, kind do of do i have a mystical streak you know this is the question yes yes, <laughs> yes i do and i think thank you for seeing through to the actual yes question. <laughs> i don't think and this is this is part of why i I brought in or allowed to intrude because it happened in a very organic way. A lot of psychologists and poets and philosophers sort of make their way into the book and, and mythology um, because I do believe, and I don't think it's, I think it, it, it gets labeled as mysticism or kind of magic or woo woo or whatever you want to call it. But I do believe that things are connected, you know, that the things that happen in our lives are not, you know, um, random, you know, I think that mostly our lives and the things that happen in them are a result of the cause and effect of our actions and other people's actions and that it is a small connected world, you know, um, and that it's, you know, when things seem magical or mystical, it's really just about 
our own willingness and readiness to see what has always been there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that this translates into really every aspect of being in terms of like recognizing street signs that speak to what's going on in your life, like that sort of thing, that sort of like serendipity or whatever. Um, But also just to seeing the motives of other people, understanding why we make the choices we do, seeing the sort of deeper wisdom of our less conscious behaviors. I think that there is an underpinning logic to it that you can call it whatever you want. Sometimes I call it God. Um, I'm comfortable with that concept. You know, it could also be the universe or nature or psychology or Buddha mind or whatever you want to call it. I do think that we have the capacity for an awareness and consciousness and vision for how things are connected and related that is far beyond what most of us choose to engage You've said that better than I've said it, and I've been trying to say it <laughs> for many months I mean, I think now. people have been saying it for yeah, centuries. Sure, sure. You know, I, do, I mean, I get such a comfort when I think about sort of spiritual matters and this kind of thing. And, and I think, like, what, you know, like, what do you know? You've never seen a ghost, you know, or, like, God's never appeared to you. And then I think, like, the Aztecs, like, who am I to say that yeah. ancient people's were wrong like what kind of egomaniacal hubris is it to say I mean and you know I, I have a lot of friends who are atheists but like I just think it's so hubristic to assume that all people over all time have just been fools <laughs> you know yes like yes really yeah <laughs> you know yeah let's think of the long the long uh Long game. There's Let's a lot of freedom. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of freedom and comfort in just for me admitting, like, I don't know, Jack. Like, I don't know. <laughs> right. But it is uh, nice when one's instincts are affirmed. And to me, it that is. following those instincts mm-hmm. and trusting in those has to do with those sort of cosmic threads that uh, one can pull and see how things are, or, or you're being pulled along. But that um, it all relates like that. It's I get true. Tremendous satisfaction. For I do too. And I saw a lot of that in the writing of this book and in the living of this book, because believing or experiencing life and affect and nature and other people as related or making sense in kind of like a cosmic divine matrix jigsaw sort of way, that does not preclude suffering. It doesn't. You know, I think that there's a lot of bias and, and some truth to this bias as sort of spiritual people or people who believe in, in these kinds of things as, you know, cowards or sheep or people who are just looking for a sort of uh, like universal tea cozy that they can, you know, <laughs> right. and I don't believe in that, you know, like I, I, I believe that it's all connected and that there is a greater sort of logic and sense and movement underpinning all of it, including us. And but that doesn't mean that we're going to get what we want. <laughs> it's not no. a magic lamp, you know? It's not it doesn't mean we won't get our hearts broken. It doesn't mean the people we love won't die or we won't be struck with a terrible illness, but it does mean that there's a way to maybe accept our lot, you know? And and sort of make choices that align our will with what may be inevitable. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I'm right there with you, so I can only agree because that is uh, it's, that's good to know. A lot of people are, are not into that, you know. Um, uh, that's basically how I go through the world. So I, I, that that rings true to me, and I feel like I'm here to do fulfill a certain amount of 
I would do what mm-hmm. I can. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe not a straight line up. It's uh, have heartbreak and sadness along the way. But that experiencing that and whatever I've contributed to others is the role that I play here until it goes on to the next thing or I go yep. to a different universe and move it forward exactly. there and uh, so on and so on. Exactly. So. And there's, you know, I think that that way of living or that belief system or whatever you want to call it like for me it comes from experience like I have not fared well at trying to control (laughs) my own destiny or other people or avoid pain or heartache or suffering like I have utterly failed at those things and that doesn't mean that I haven't in some way you know I've pursued my dream of being a writer to some degree I've achieved that you know like I've been able to um, have relationships that are fulfilling and all that but like I you know it hasn't been easy and you know my decision to sort of not to yield to the things I cannot control has really simplified my life you know and and to accept pain is is a necessary part of moving through it and moving beyond it you know and like even I had this conversation recently with a friend who's also a personal essayist and memoirist and yeah I was like you know I've been dealing with some reactions to the book and the ex-partner who I write about in the book is sort of like going crazy and like on on kind of a smear campaign and there's just like there's nothing for me to do about it and I said to this friend I was like like I want everyone to like me I want no one to ever be upset with me like I'm pretty invested in that and I always have been and yet I keep writing this work that upsets people and that's not my goal I try to mitigate it as much as possible without sort of um, compromising the honesty of my work and yet I keep doing this and she was like well yeah because like your belief in what you're doing and in your work and in telling the truth and the ways that that can serve other people that you've never even met is greater than your desire to avoid pain and be liked and I was like well like that's true and this still kind of sucks but there is a comfort in being like oh you're right like there are things that are more precious to me than being liked or avoiding discomfort and you know like I have respect for that in an objective way so I guess I have some self-respect for that you know and you are who you are and where you are because of all that Um, and to me uh, it provides a tremendous amount of calm I don't go through the day anxious Mm mm-hmm Maybe mm-hmm. as a younger person I did, but yeah. not, not anymore. Yeah, I have the same experience where I used to have a lot of anxiety. And now, because I sort of accept my lot and I'm not, my life isn't governed by my wish to avoid it, yeah. I can just have, because anxiety is not, I don't think of it as a sort of primary emotional color. It's more a symptom of avoiding those primary colors. And now, uh, you know, through many years of therapy and spiritual practice and working, you know, a certain 12 steps, I I now have access to my own sadness and right. anger and, <laughs> and these other um, things that we like to avoid. But it has cured my anxiety. Which is no small thing. It's not. <laughs> it, is a, it is, you know, it is something I'm very grateful for. I, I will say I've definitely had moments where I was like all this searching for my feelings and trying to get in touch. Like, this is the reward. I get to be sad. <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> but the truth is that it is it is worth it. And, and also sort of being capable of entering into and feeling and accepting what you feel and who you are has these incredible rewards that go forward into your relationships and your ability to connect with other people and my, yeah. and my ability to connect with other people through my work too. 
that's the thing that you can then then be present for others mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. either give back or just be there for mm-hmm. for something and have real connections yes. with them yeah. you know yeah i do know <laughs> I do, but now you're you're gonna. You said you're only in town for a couple of days, and I'm so glad that we could grab a few moments here. But then you're off again to do some touring, mm-hmm. and I it's am. it's been going okay out there. Would you have a bus that you it's, drive around? It's <laughs> yes, I have a bus <laughs> and a bunch of clowns that ride on the bus with me. We have a routine that we're doing at bookstores all over the country. Good. I hope now it's sea themed. It's a lot of airports and hotel rooms, um, but it's also a lot of like hugs with friends who live in places that are not New York, which yes. is where I live. Um, and a lot of interesting conversations with um, smart people that I relate to like yourself. Well, thank you very much, <laughs> Melissa. I've enjoyed our conversation. I wish you all the success with this book and all the whatever comes after as well. Um, any questions for me? Um, no, that's fine. No. <laughs> Well, I wish you the best. Thank you. The book has abandoned me, and it's out now. Thank Uh, you so much, Dale. Thank you very much. And there we have it, another fine time spent in the deep night. My thanks to Melissa Febos for the conversation and her good work. Melissa is touring now in support of the book, so maybe you can catch her. She's out there on the Abandon Me tour bus rolling through a city near you, and by all means, go out and purchase the book. Uh, You won't be sorry, and then if you uh, have listened to this once, you go out and you buy the book, you come back and listen to the program again, you say, oh boy, Dale was right on with that. That's why I trust him so much. Sure, you'll you'll have that experience. And uh, as for me, well, on to reading the next thing, I guess, but we also have some exciting things coming up, and I know you're going to love them, so please stay tuned. Thank you so much for that, my fellow Deep Night denizens. Until then, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night is written and performed by James Bewley with production assistance from Harvest Works in New York City. Music throughout each episode is provided by the amazing talents on the artistic roster of Howler Hills Farm in the great state of Ohio. Deep Night theme by Zach Gabbard, season nine podcast icon and logo designed by Samantha Mash. Download episodes directly through daleradio.com or subscribe and review the show on iTunes. Also available on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Follow Dale on Twitter at Dale Radio or Instagram at Dale Seaver for behind-the-scenes peeks into the production of the show and the life of Dale Seaver. Thank you to all the subscribers and supporters of this program, and thanks to you for listening.